the first part of the system contains aquaculture tanks. Mm. And of course, as fish grow, they produce waste. Yeah. And this waste moves on and acts as nutrients to these plants, which is why we're able to grow them in the desert. Right. It's a holistic approach towards sustainability where, you know, you're tackling food security, you're not competing with agricultural land, you're not competing with freshwater, mm -hmm. and you're also producing fuel. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to episode 16 of Science Town. Transportation is one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, prompting many scientists, engineers, and researchers to focus their efforts towards a low or no carbon future. But the scale and breadth of the challenge can be daunting. How do we clean up the way we move people and stuff around the planet? In this episode, we dig into some of the science and the solutions that aim to make global transportation far less ecologically damaging. Enjoy. My name is Mohamed Al-Ghailani. I am currently working for Boeing as part of the environmental strategy team. Uh, I focus on avi aviation biofuel production and aviation mm -hmm. sustainability in the Middle East and North Africa region. Basically, the aviation industry is um, currently under some scrutiny due to the carbon dioxide emissions. The carbon dioxide emissions by the aviation industry amounts to approximately 2% of global carbon emissions. Oh. Compared to other industries, it's not a huge amount, but it's still an important and significant amount. Aviation is actually one of the few industries that came together, um, including manufacturers, operators, uh, ground handlers, and tried to come up with some goals to target climate change and to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions. So what are you were talking about biofuels in particular? So is that kind of the industry path forward in terms of reducing carbon? So uh, there are uh, four main pillars towards reducing carbon dioxide emissions by the aviation industry. Yeah. The first one is innovation and improving aircrafts. So that contributes to uh, consuming less fuel and sure. producing less carbon dioxide. Yeah. Our target for that is 1.5% annual improvements. We've kind of achieved that already and we're trying to surpass that and wow. aim higher. Yeah. The second pillar is operational efficiency. That includes the way that you operate your aircraft. So there's no point of putting extra fuel in the aircraft if you don't need it or the way that you take off and land or uh, the way that you taxi. All of these things contribute to how much fuel you use. Th that also plays a significant part in reduce uh, reducing carbon dioxide emissions. Right. The third part is aviation biofuels. So aviation biofuels can come from several different sources, mm -hmm. whether it's plants, waste oils, ethanol, and these can then be converted to uh, jet fuel. And they can be used uh, the same way that, we that you would use a petroleum-based fuel. Mm -hmm. So they're, uh, they're what we call a drop-in fuel. So you would not have to make any changes to the aircraft or to the engine for you to use that fuel. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that the concept of aviation biofuels is new, but it's actually been there for a while. We've had more than 250 
50,000 flights uh, on aviation biofuels uh, yeah. up to this point. Five airports uh, around the world, uh, Los Angeles, Brisbane, and three airports in Scandinavia mm. have a constant flow of, of biofuel in their, um, in their refueling systems. Oh. <laughs> and the fourth pillar is carbon offsetting schemes. Right. There's a program called Corsia, which is the carbon offset- offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation. And that's being organized by the International Civil Aviation Organization. This um, initiative targets carbon neutral growth yeah. from 2020 onwards. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have volunteered to be part of this program. Since the beginning of the year, they've been collecting their data in terms of their um, carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah. And then moving onwards from 2020, they have volunteered to offset their um, uh, growth emissions. Mm-hmm. 80% of international aviation will be covered by this program which is a significant uh, number is is this like in uh, growing trees somewhere do you, do you have a sense for like how that ends up uh, <clears throat> taking place uh, there are organizations that um, certify offset uh, yeah. credits and these are well recognized international organizations that define what classifies as an offset or not When, when we talk about offsets, people think, just think about uh, planting trees. There's so many different ways that you can uh, offset your carbon. You have growth in different countries around the world, and then instead of using gas or coal-fired plants to power those, then you could build a, um, a solar plant or wind farm to account for the excess energy that's required by that community that is currently growing. Uh, lots of airlines have also volunteered to, um, they, they provide carbon offsetting schemes for their passengers mm. if they select to do so. penetration in the aviation industry uh, is quite slow. These aircraft cost millions of dollars and then they fly for 20 years. Right. So to make significant changes to the, uh, to the system itself, to the engine or to the aircraft, mm-hmm. requires a long time of research, development, production, and for the meantime, our only alternative is aviation biofuel. Right. Because these fuels are identical to... Uh, petroleum uh, fuel uh, and you can use it the same way that you're using um, fossil fuels. Uh, fossil fuels. Yeah. So right now there are a couple of pathways of producing aviation biofuels. Yeah. For example, you can use waste oils. It's called the HEFA process and then you convert them to uh, aviation biofuel. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you could use the Fisher Trops process or you could also uh, convert ethanol to jet. Okay. Uh, so these are the three of the main pathways. Up to now, we have six approved pathways by ISDM. And then there's always research and development going on into trying to find different ways of producing aviation biofuel. Let's say you, you go through that uh, process to produce mm-hmm. a, a biofuel. How long before you can um, get that widely used in the industry? 
the challenges that we're facing are first of all how much oil is available for us to use without competing for food of course that's right. that's a very important pillar of sustainability you don't want to be using agricultural land that's supposed to be producing food to produce uh, jet fuel yeah. so an interesting project that we worked on here in the region is called the um, seas project seawater energy and agricultural system Mm. And uh, this system uh, basically integrates the production of food with production of fuel. So the plant that we use for this Mm -hmm. is a specific type of plant called salicornia. And this grows in the desert, coastal deserts, under high uh, salinity conditions. So you can use seawater to water them. Mm -hmm. And they grow in the desert. So you're not competing with fresh water. You're not competing with agricultural land. And you're producing a, a crop which contains oil, mm. and then you would you can collect that oil and produce aviation biofuel from it. Yeah, uh, we've had a test flight with uh, with Etihad in January two thousand and nineteen, and that's when we went through the whole process of you know growing the crops, collecting the seeds, pressing the oil, converting the oil to aviation biofuel, and then actually using it on a flight. The interesting thing about this project is it takes different parts of sustainability and um, it considers all of them. The first part of the system contains aquaculture tanks. Mm. And of course, as fish grow, they produce waste. And this waste moves on and acts as nutrients to these plants, which is why we're able to grow them in the desert. It's a holistic approach towards sustainability where, you know, you're tackling food security. You're not competing with agricultural land. You're not competing with fresh water. And you're also producing fuel. It's a pretty impressive system, and uh, we hope to see something like this growing in the uh, in the future. Thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to Science Town. I would say that the regulations are are changing probably Mm -hmm. most rapidly in the on-highway space, both in Europe and in the United States. CARB is really pushing um, for very stringent regulations on criteria emissions. Europe is doing more in the CO2 space. But the challenges for um, even at the power generation space, right, is the fact that corporations have their own sustainability goals. That's Lisa Farrell, the Director of Advanced Systems Integration and Research and Technology at Cummins. So it's not just what the regulators are doing. Right. We're also going to be pushed by either individual fleets or big corporations to help them with their sustainability goals and getting to low-carbon footprint. Can you give um, an example or two, if, if possible, about things that Cummins is moving towards and meeting some of those goals? We're looking at battery electric vehicles, so we've, we've made some acquisitions in that space, some okay. acquisitions in the uh, fuel cell space, then also looking at life cycle of batteries, are there opportunities for longer-term storage to mm-hmm. help um, with some of even the data center situations, right? There's a lot of interest in being able to go to different types of solutions that use storage as well as 
power generation. And so then how do corporate entities make sure that they sort of fit in with what regulators are, are trying to do? Like It's very challenging. So mm-hmm. I'm on one of the teams that is, is working on t- uh, technical solutions for California's low NOx standards. It's a balance between trying to understand what we think we'll be able to do, mm-hmm. right, and, and how aggressive the regulators want to be. And then I think there's also the challenge of if we really do think that hydrogen is the future fuel, what's the path to get there, right? How quickly will it go? Mm-hmm. And there's broad speculation, right? Some countries, depending on availability, think it could be as early as, you know, 2030, right? There's there's talk of banning internal combustion engines by 2035. Overall, I, I think for us, we believe that it's going to be a balance, and we really need to move to the life cycle analysis. California wants to regulate point of use, and I'm not saying point of use is not important. It is, right? Yeah. For air quality, it's very important. But the whole life cycle is what's really going to change climate change. It may be zero emissions at, at their point of use, yeah. but if you push that solution, like a BEV solution across the United States, yeah, uh, where you're running off coal-fired power plants, right? Right. That, that's not a good solution, yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so how do we really get to a point where that's what they're regulating? Not the technology itself, not the solution, but where we need to get to for the environment. Hmm. I see a market for for people to capture CO2 wherever they may capture it and mm-hmm. to so to transport it to a place where it's purchased and yeah. then uh, buried. That's Robert Dibble. He's a professor emeritus in the Clean Combustion Research Center at KAUST. And okay. selling the credits to mobility people, Saudi uh, Airlines is counting on purchasing a lot of carbon credits so that they continue to uh, burn reliably the jet fuel that they've very comfortable with, and uh, they, they can't afford taking much risk. And I support that. In a, a broader sense, how much does cars and boats and the other stuff that make up mobility, like how much of the wedge does that make up? Do you have any idea percentage-wise? I'm thinking of a third. Mm-hmm. Electric power gens, the biggest part, mm-hmm. but not far behind is transportation. How would you then propose to capture carbon and then sequester it uh, for credits or if you were going to close the loop, as you were suggesting, on a, on a cycle? How does that happen? Well, many people are certainly talking and investing in what we call direct air capture. And at first blush, that means to simply remove CO2 from the air. And somebody will rapidly remind you that it's a pretty dilute at 400 parts per million, but if you do your homework and uh, sharpen your pencil, you can actually profitably remove that uh, CO2. There's uh, increasing investments in direct air capture companies. Uh, Ideally, they'll be uh, sited at places where energy is uh, low cost.
there's also mm. quite a bit of talk of um, the e-fuels, right? So collecting carbon that's byproducts of mm -hmm. other processes, right? Whether it be food waste or even the chemical processing right. and combining that with renewable hydrogen to make essentially drop in low carbon fuels. Are there big technological leaps that still have to happen for that to happen? Or are there infrastructure changes that need to happen? What's your sense? No, for no leaps. The technologies here, our job is to make it faster, better, cheaper, mm -hmm. but we're not asking for miracles. Let me add, Lisa in her talks talked about cloud computing and how uh, trucks will be communicating with uh, large computers and doing computations, uh, optimizing the trip. Yeah. And uh, the truck's going to know that a hill is ahead and that maybe it's going to need battery backup to do that hill most efficiently. And so it'll start charging the batteries now and make sure that the batteries are ready. Hmm. And in fact, the entire travel the truck may be taken is already programmed into the computer and so the route is known even the expected traffics will be known so uh, saudi airlines said in the past we would fly into any airport in the world all airplanes and then descend rapidly and that just keeps the airspace clear but they said now because of the uh, climate change pressure he said we start to glide 100 to 200 miles before landing to save fuel to minimize CO2. Yeah. And fleets today manage for just time efficiency. UPS or delivery, right, will will manage their deliveries based on, you know, traffic patterns and where they need to go, right? Mm -hmm. And I think adding in both emissions and CO2 as a factor in that my house. I'm halfway up a hill in Berkeley and I carefully plan my trips, you know, to hit several bases and to go in the middle of the day to avoid traffic. And, and, and I reluctantly ordered a few things from Amazon and I read that, that Amazon is going to buy hundreds of hybrid electric vehicles to do yeah. their deliveries. And it dawned on me that Amazon has bigger computers and they're doing the same computation I'm doing, only faster, better, cheaper. Right. <laughs> and so the, the few things that I'm picking up, I actually, it makes more economic sense for me to just order it from Amazon. And the planet's better off for it, which surprises me. Brought to you by Kaust. Thank you for joining us. It's a it's an honor. You have a, a long and storied history in F1. Yeah, it's certainly long, uh, and I feel that now. But uh, <laughs> it's been a great career. Um, can't imagine doing anything else. Actually, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. That's Pat Simmons. He's the chief technical officer at Formula One Racing. Yeah. We talked to um, one of the aviation specialists yesterday about the wedge that aviation occupies, which I think he put at about 2% of the global carbon budget. F1 has an even far smaller wedge. And so I guess perhaps the question is, why is F1 pushing towards an even lower carbon mobility future? 
Well, I think it's not so much the amount of carbon that we produce. It's a it's a small number in global terms, around a quarter of a million tons CO2 <laughs> equivalent. But I, I think what we do offer is a message. We have a very large audience, over 500 million sort of unique viewers. We reach nearly 2.9 billion over the year. And that's a very powerful medium. Mm. So I think if we can show in Formula One that actually the internal combustion engine can be a form of low carbon mobility and if we can get that message across not not just to the general public but to the opinion formers to the politicians then i think we've got a, a real role to play we know that there's not a single solution to the, the the problems of climate change we know that it needs to be multifaceted yeah and and i think that we can provide some solutions that are not just good for the far distant future but i think through drop-in fuels and things like that can can really play a part in accelerating that change because mm. we're running out of time and uh, we need to do something pretty quickly. Yeah. So give us an example or two of what some of those solutions are that you foresee in the near-term future. Well, I think if we just look to the near-term past first, I think that we've we've done a great job with the internal combustion engine itself. You know, up until 2014, when we introduced the, the current uh, downsized, turbocharged, uh, highly hybridized engine, we were doing what most people were doing. We were running thermal efficiencies of around 30%. Um, so, and, and just for viewers uh, and listeners to understand, what size are these engines and what power do they put out at that size? Because I think that's usually pretty astounding. Well, the, the, the current engine is a, a 1.6 litre turbocharged right. engine. It's a V6 configuration and it puts out around uh, 800 horsepower. And, and it does it very efficiently because we've moved on now from that 30% efficiency mm -hmm. to over 50% efficiency. I think if you'd asked me some years ago, will we hit 50% efficiency? I would have said that's, a, that's an incredible target. And I Probably not, but we've done it. We've exceeded it. So I think now, you know, we can set our targets even higher. To answer your question, what are we going to see in the future? I think we're going to see a much more efficient internal combustion engine. I've set a sort of personal target that we hit 60%. But perhaps more importantly, we want to do it with a, a, a high proportion of sustainable low carbon fuel. Uh, and I think that that's a very important part of our future. Manny, do you want to talk a little bit about the things that you have to do to get from 50 to uh, propose 60%? Uh, do you have some ideas about how that happens? Indeed, here here at Calist, we're investigating options to go to 60% efficiency. That's Manny Sarathi. He's the Associate Director of the Clean Combustion Research Center at Calist. We, we've heard about two strokes. We've heard about uh, maybe hybrid uh, HCCI, partially premixed combustion engine technologies, waste heat recovery. There's going to be many, many different options to get there. Yeah. And I think that's going to be part of the exciting engineering challenges over the next decade to make sure they hit these targets. I think one of the main things we're talking about is uh, in different mobility sectors, the requirements are going to be different. The challenges to achieve, say, net zero carbon emissions are going to be different. Even though the CO2 impact of, of F1 is small, yeah. uh, the technologies that are developed, the engines will be relevant to road-going vehicles uh, in the next decade and going forward. So developing those technologies and then helping automakers adopt those technologies in the future will have a huge impact mm -hmm. in lowering CO2 emissions.
some of the major opportunities we think going forward are in fuel engine matching having low carbon tailor-made fuels synthetic fuels from biomass or from renewable electricity that are designed to give us an engine that can operate at its best at its highest efficiency will allow us to reduce co2 but also allow us to recycle co2 and when we talk about the role of, of the kingdom and saudi arabia and in the G20 that's coming up this year. This is yeah. exactly the framework we're pushing for sustainable mobility in marine, mm. aviation, and road uh, transport. And of course, the key here is to think about everything from a life cycle perspective. And this is also the framework that uh, Saudi Arabia will be pushing forward, considering energy production, fuel production, vehicle production, the use of the vehicle, and as well as the, the end of life aspects. Mm. And this type of framework is one that we want governments, regulators to also adopt. Mm -hmm. We need to move towards a more holistic life cycle framework so we can actually choose the best technologies depending on the place, the time, the availability, and also economic social constraints in, in different regions of the world. And this will all help to achieve net zero emissions and, and limit you know, the climate impacts of CO2 mm -hmm. at the same time making sure that the technologies that are available are broad enough so that different parts of the road can choose the right technology for their markets. Mm -hmm. Any pet technologies that are happening now that, that might filter down into the market in the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years, whatever it takes? You know, I, I don't think you can overstress the importance of life cycle analysis. Mm -hmm. And in Formula One, you know, if we can do anything, if we can just bring that message to the regulators, we'll have, we'll have done a great thing because I get so upset to hear about these zero emission vehicles that any engineer knows are far from zero emission. Right. I think one of the very interesting challenges is if we're going to move to a synthetic fuel, then where does that carbon come from? Yes, I know we're going to capture it out of the air, but I think there's a there's a great technology race there in what's the most efficient way of pulling that carbon out of the air. Mm -hmm. Is it direct air capture? You know, is it using nature? Is it algae? There there are so many different uh, things that are out there. There's so many different things people are looking at, and and uh, I really want to open up that race in Formula One. I want I want the people you know these these great engineers that we have in Formula One. I want them thinking about that sort of problem. It's not not to say, well, look, let's design an engine with this bore and this stroke and you know this technology, and then let's see what we get. Yeah. Let's say, look, guys, here, here's your target. You're clever people. Now, what would you do? Uh, and so I I see the source of carbon and the method of capturing that carbon uh, and turning it into a synthetic fuel. I think that's a a great thing that we're going to see in the next uh, decade or so. And I agree definitely uh, removing carbon from the air using nature-based solutions or technology-based yeah. solutions will be important. I do think there's a large scope for improving carbon capture at mm -hmm. the point source before emission to the environment. And this all comes within the framework of a, of a circular carbon economy. Yeah. If we get the carbon where it's at its highest concentration, the stack of the power plant and if we improve the power plant using different types of power cycles, such as oxy-combustion cycles, we can get high-purity CO2, which can be easily captured, then together with renewable hydrogen converted to fuel, I think that's a, it's a huge opportunity. Myself, I see large, large opportunities for collecting uh, carbon from seawater, which is not a huge area of interest yet, 
Hmm. Uh, this concentration of uh, carbon in seawater is double that of the atmosphere. And a recent project I'm working on is actually collecting the carbon from the brine or the discharge of a desalination plant, which is four times that of the atmosphere. So because the, the desal plant has already done a lot of work of enriching carbon during desalination yeah. in the brine. And actually, it's a rich source of carbon I'm looking at now to, to capture and then to use that for synthetic fuel. As, as we talk about circular carbon economy, th this is going to be a huge economy in the future. And there's going to be all kinds of uh, trading schemes for carbon, solutions for capturing carbon from different point sources, mm -hmm. environmental sources, and then converting it to different products. And, and fuels will be a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, other types of materials will also be important. And I think that's where mobility plays a key role because low carbon mobility contributes to about a third of all carbon emissions and thinking then how mobility solutions can fit into circular carbon economy from industry, from agriculture, from residential will provide a hopefully a suite of solutions in the future, say 20 years from now, and uh, not just looking things at one sector at a time, how everything works together, how everything comes together on a life cycle approach, I think will be the thing that engineers will be pushing forward in the next 10 years and trying to inform policymakers and regulators to adopt these types of practices so we have the biggest impact for mitigating climate change for our future generations. Cutting edge tech, science, and startup culture. Science Town. So we focused on energy storage, and energy storage is a, a very versatile technology which fits into the grid of the future, fits into vehicles and transportation of the future. That's John Battaglini. He's the business development director for Lockheed Martin Energy. What sort of industries then are already using this or are you envisioning are going to use it? Sure. So, so we look at a, uh, multiple industries that can use energy storage. Uh, that can be utilities. Saudi Aramco's of the world. It can be solar developers, wind developers, uh, anybody deploying renewable generation can couple storage with it. So grid level. Storage. Grid level, mm -hmm. right. But it can be used not only for renewables, but it can be used for vehicle charging. It can be used for peak load management. Okay. So when all these electric vehicles come onto the grid, it's going to change the, the peak load profile. So sure. you're, you're going to need energy storage at many different points of the network. So. Mm -hmm. When you talk about storage, is this purely storing in a battery sense? Is this storing uh, potential energy? Like, uh, give me the mix of what it Yeah, entails. so, so it is, uh, it's an electrochemical system. So okay. the, the technology we're bringing to the market is a flow battery. Okay. There, it's, it's meant for long duration technology, which we define as 6 to 12 hours of storage. Okay. So you're, you're storing the energy in, in tanks. So these are aqueous solutions. And, and our intellectual property is the formulation that goes in those aqueous tanks. I see. And enables uh, a safe technology, a low-cost technology, a technology that will last for 20 years, a technology that will have a low balance of plan and a very, very benign environmental uh, impact. Sure. 
it's electrochemicals, batteries, bigger batteries than, you know, it's different than lithium ion, which I think a lot of people associate with batteries, but this exactly. is kind of the longer duration, the next generation technology beyond lithium that's we're bringing the market. So can this be considered in a way a solar fuel that you're, you're driving a gradient for a solar fuel that's then somehow tapped into? Yeah, that's one way to look about it. I mean, that, that is a big, um, a big application is coupling it with solar. What we're finding in other parts of the world and expect to find it in the Middle East too is lots of solar going in the ground. Of course, that peaks at a certain time of the day. Sure. And the industry peak is usually later in the day. So it's a big time shift. So that's the way we think about it. You're shifting yeah. big blocks of energy from, say, 12 to 6 when all the energy is generated to, you know, 6 to 12 when, when you need more energy, you know, on the grid, whether it's for vehicle charging, air conditioning, you know, yeah. when the peak loads really, you know, pick up. another way to think about solar plus storage is if you're building a new city mm -hmm. right or a new microgrid like a project like neon that's going uh, you know fairly substantial project absolutely rather than wait for the utility to build traditional poles and wires well you can go right to a solar plus storage infrastructure mm -hmm. in locations that you know um, are very distributed and dispersed now, so you can jump to that next technology. So, so that raises a good question. Is the implementation of this technology a legacy infrastructure challenge, or is it a technological leap that's yet to have happened? How, how do you see that? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Energy storage can be used for so many different things. Mm -hmm by a utility, by a developer, by a military base looking to become independent and resilient. Right. That is certainly adding to the existing infrastructure. Or in the case where you're building a new city or a new base where nothing exists, yeah. you can you know deploy that uh, combination of technologies for, for generation right off the bat. Storage will enable more uh, solar penetration on the grid. Yeah. You know, right now solar can be anywhere, depending upon where you, you live and travel to, it could be anywhere from 10% of the generation mix to some places like California, it's 25, 30%. So you have a lot of places around the world that want to go to 50%, 100% renewables. Yeah. And the only way you're going to get there is with lots of storage deployed with it. So 20, 30% solar, you can get by perhaps on its own yeah. when you get beyond that you, you need just a couple storage with it right so and that will make it more ubiquitous across the network and and uh, you know reaching more industry more residents and things like that so yeah. what's the future of this space particularly as it relates to mobility mm -hmm. transportation's going through a disruption yeah. The grid's going through a disruption. They might seem independent, but they're really not, right? Because yeah. there's a lot of connections there. Mm -hmm. So storage will enable, you know, more EVs. Everyone's going to come home at 5 o'clock at night and plug those EVs, and guess what? The utilities doesn't have the power to handle that. Right. So they need to deploy new technology to handle those. The peak load's going to change, yeah. and that's a big deal for the industry. Storage can help. Solar can help. You can distribute those technologies to where it's really needed. So... It's going to be a big enabler for 
more electric vehicles, more solar, and the, and the like. So those, those are the two, two of the big drivers that we see coming as a result of this. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for speaking with us. We really appreciate All right. it. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you to everyone who took part in this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Arias, and Julie West. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.